Proverbs chapter 5, verses 1 through 23. Let's listen with reverence and rejoicing to the word of our God. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth, Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength, and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed, and you say, how I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors, I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline. Because of his great folly, he is led astray. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would anoint the reading and preaching of your word with the presence and power of your spirit so that in our midst this morning, Christ would be exalted, your people would be edified and equipped and encouraged, the lost would be engaged and evangelized, For the glory of your name in all things, we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. You can be seated. Well, it was Woody Allen that once said that sex outside of marriage is a pretty empty experience, but as far as empty experiences go, it's a pretty good one. Of course, as he he usually does, Allen has a, a witty and waggish way of putting things. However, according to Proverbs 5, he's also dead wrong about this. According to Proverbs 5, sex outside of marriage is not a pretty empty but pretty good experience. It's actually a pretty empty experience that's completely destructive. We're talking about sex this morning. I don't need to do a lot to catch your attention with that. And I know that it's not necessarily, though, something that everyone finds to be a completely comfortable subject to talk about in church. Uh, However, it's talked about almost constantly everywhere else in our cultural moment and usually in ways that are tremendously distorted and damaging. 
And furthermore, the Bible talks about sex, as we see here in Proverbs 5. And it talks about sex in, in ways here that, while reverent and respectful, are also not at all shy or prudish. And so for those reasons this morning, we're going to talk about sex as a church, and we're going to do so rather bluntly. And what a better place to learn about sex and from God's unerring source of wisdom found here, particularly in the book of Proverbs. We've been making our way through Proverbs chapters 1 to 9, where we've been seeing King Solomon giving a series of addresses to his crown prince of a son, and, and he's been admonishing and inviting his son to to revere and receive wisdom in life, to avoid walking down the path of folly in life and instead to choose and treasure this path of wisdom. And we've been saying that wisdom is this, this skill of living in right relationship with everything in life which has at its source and center living in right relationship with God. Living in, in right relationship with God, fearing Him, and knowing Him is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs has been telling us. So when He's the son of your solar system, everything else as it rotates around Him begins to fall into its proper place in life, including your relationship with sex. And that's what we're discussing here this morning. God our Father is addressing us through the pen of Solomon and he's inviting us, he's beckoning us to avoid this path of sexual folly and to enjoy the path of sexual wisdom. Uh, the big idea of our text here is to avoid folly's path to devastation and to only pursue wisdom's sexual gratification. That's the idea here. And we'll take that message, that, that idea, in two parts the first we find in verses 1 to 14 of chapter 5, where we see something of the allure and danger of sexual immorality. And the second we find in verses 15 to 23, where we find the appeal and delight of sexual constancy. So first look with me at, at verses 1 to 14. Uh, Solomon is, is beginning here his discourse on sex in Proverbs 5 by saying, My son, be attentive to my wisdom Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. And again, what we're seeing here in these verses is Solomon addressing his crown prince of a son and beckoning him toward a life of wisdom and prudence. And he's, he's doing this because his son is going to be ruling and reigning on the throne one day, right? And he wants his son to be well prepared for that. He wants his son to be equipped with wisdom. And of course, as, as we've also seen so far, these addresses have been, in a sense, um, universalized so that the king is here addressing all the sons of the kingdom. This is, this is ultimately God, our king and father, speaking to us, addressing us as his children in Christ, beckoning us toward wisdom and understanding, and thereby seeking to equip us to rule and reign in his kingdom. And as I was reflecting on that this past week, it, it dawned on me that these passages bestow such a dignity and honor upon us as God's children, don't they? Right? As God is here addressing us as his sons and daughters in Christ, he's saying to us, you're royalty. You are my royal people in my son. You, you are a royal people, and I want to help you live like what I've declared you to be. 
And in particular, in Proverbs 5 here, he wants to help us live like royalty as it relates to this matter of sex. He's essentially saying, you're, you're worth far too much to degrade and demean yourself with the emptiness and destructiveness of sexual immorality. Okay, you, you are a son or daughter of the king. I've dignified you with regality and royalty. I've placed a crown upon your head, he's saying. I've granted you access to my kingdom in which you're going to rule and reign with my son forevermore. Don't undermine that reality by living beneath your worth as sons and daughters of the king. And so with that, he's also incredibly realistic about our temptation and capacity to do just that. And here's the reality. Uh, sexual temptation and sexual decadence and immorality is, is given something of a particular focus here in the book of Proverbs. And for one, it's, it's given particular focus because it's just so particularly destructive, which we'll come to see. But it's also so particularly alluring. We see something of that in verse 3 here. Solomon just realistically depicts the, the attractiveness of sexual temptation, and he, he depicts it as a strange woman. He says, for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. Of course, we, we might just add as a caveat here that passages like this are not justification for treating women in general as temptresses. Okay, we shouldn't need to say that, but Unfortunately, we do. Passages like this are not meant to serve as a justification for demeaning and objectifying our sisters in Christ and our fellow image bearers as evil seductresses. But it does make sense for Solomon, since he's talking to his son here, and since he's been personifying wisdom as a lady and greed and violence as a gang, that he might also personify sexual temptation and immorality as an attractive woman. And so he does here. And this, this, this woman representing sexual temptation and decadence, her, her lips don't guard knowledge. They drip honey. And honey, of, of course, is sweet. It's enjoyable. It's, it's t- you crave sweets like honey, don't you? And, and her, then her speech is also compared to oil as well, which is just so smooth and suave. And in this, Solomon is saying, you need to watch out. Because temptation to sexual immorality often sounds really sweet and really smooth and really alluring and really attractive. It's often very enticing and inviting. It often just sounds so good and tells you exactly what you want to hear when you want to hear it. You know, temptation to sexual immorality will often sound like, hey, you know, this is just the satisfaction of an animalistic craving and desire and and, and and whatnot. It's not partic- sex is not particularly sacred or important. Sexual immorality is not particularly destructive. Sex is just something you need. Satisfy that need however you'd like. Or it might sound like, you know, my spouse just doesn't seem to, to see me or appreciate me like I feel I deserve. But this coworker, man, I, I don't know, I feel seen by them. Maybe I should explore that. Or maybe it sounds like, just click the link. Just click it. It's not going to hurt anybody. It's not particularly damaging to you or to women or society. Pornography, it's, no one needs to know in the first place. It doesn't matter. Just click the link. 
You know, Puritan Thomas Brooks, his wonderful book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, once wrote that as a master tempter, Satan presents the bait but hides the hook. He presents the bait. He presents what's attractive, what sounds good and sweet and smooth. But watch out because there's always a hook and there is always in temptation to sexual immorality as well. And verse 4 shows us that. It says, but in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. That, that sweetness you saw and heard, and that, that will turn into bitter poison in your mouth. Right? What was presented as being smooth as oil, well, that will show itself to be a sharp blade that will cut you into pieces. Because sexual immorality is alluring but destructive. Verse 5, her, her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. She will lead you to destruction and death. You know, consider this. Imagine you're on a walk, on a hike through some nice woods. We enjoy hiking as a family. But imagine you're, you're on this walk through the woods. You come across this beautiful path that catches your eye. It's, a, it's a, a path. It's nice and smooth. There's not too many rocks or roots for you to potentially trip over. You'll be safe. There's gorgeous flowers lining the path. There are trees on either side offering shade from the sun. Some of them are bearing fruit that looks good to eat. There are birds flying about even. There are chirping happily and singing their beautiful bird songs. But then you see a sign that says, warning, watch out for a vicious and violent bear that lives along this path. It's been known to, to cut people to pieces and eat them and kill them. Walk at your own risk. Now, just think about, it. would you walk down that path? Is that a path you would walk down? Absolutely not. No matter how good that path looks, no matter how inviting and enticing, that path should be avoided by anyone looking to avoid the dangers of dismemberment and death. And so it is, Solomon says, with walking down this path of sexual immorality and folly. He goes on to tease out some of the destructiveness of, of walking down this path that some might experience from walking down this path here in verses 7 to 14. You know, the examples are so specific, it, you almost wonder if maybe Solomon has seen these things firsthand, right? Perhaps he's witnessed people walk down this path and reap these kinds of results. Verses 9 and 10 speak about how, you know, you, you might walk down this path and, and eventually lose your reputation and resources as a result of sexual immorality. Things you've worked hard for and labored for in life very well might be taken away from you and given to strangers instead. In other words, it sounds like Solomon is talking about some sort of debt or financial penalty incurred as a result of sexual immorality. And of course, in, in that particular context, that would look a certain way there in Israel at that time. But even still, we, we see this kind of thing all the time today. Most of us have seen this kind of thing. Sexual immorality often leads to divorce, broken families, single-parent household, all of which can often result in financial hardship, alimony, child support, debt. And that's to say nothing of the, the illegal sexual activities that often result in 
fines and penalties and jail time. Sexual immorality oftentimes results in these kinds of consequences. Verses 11 to 13 speak about the mental and emotional consequences. They describe someone in anguish in the end of, of their life after a lifetime of sexual immorality. Perhaps this person had many sexual partners throughout their life, but in the end, they're left isolated and alone in their brokenheartedness. They're alone in their regret and grief. And I think, again, many of us have have seen things like this firsthand. Verse 14, climaxes in the loss of good standing in the covenant community. So this person's sexual immorality has been made public, and it's brought personal shame and humiliation to loved ones and loss of respect among God's people. Solomon is trying to draw attention to some of the social consequences of sexual immorality. And all of that's to say nothing about the reality of the final judgment, a final judgment that awaits all those who rebel against and refuse God's good design when it comes to his gift of sex. Sexual immorality, sooner or later, always ends in destruction. The bait is presented, and it's so often so alluring, but there's always a hook. And isn't this becoming increasingly evident in our cultural moment? Sexual decadence does indeed lead to just a ton of damage and destructiveness. We, of course, live in this wake of the sexual revolution wherein, you know, since the 60s, the 1960s, ancient norms and and wisdom concerning sex have been carelessly tossed aside and rejected. Where desire for sex is seen as nothing more than an animalistic craving and where sex is increasingly seen as just just a casual social interaction. Not much different than maybe grabbing coffee with someone or playing tennis. Some have called this um, sexual disenchantment. Sexual disenchantment is where sex is typically seen as just meaningless. So there's really no such thing, really, as sexual immorality. Pretty much anything goes, so long as there's consent between two adult parties or, or more adult parties involved. That's, that's just accepted as the orthodoxy of our day. But aren't we seeing that in all of this sexual chaos and confusion in our age, that sexual disenchantment just simply doesn't correspond to reality? That sex is actually meaningful. That it's sacred and important and should be treated with the utmost care and carefulness. And to not do so, well, it actually leads to much of what we're seeing in our culture right now. And what are we seeing right now? Deep, wide, profound brokenness permeating our society at an accelerated rate. Uh, Thaddeus Williams, he writes about this in his wonderful book, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising the Truth. He writes about some of the damage done by the sexual decadence and expressive individualism we've seen since the 1960s saying this. He says, it's not a coincidence that the meteoric rise of the gospel of autonomous self-making since the 1960s corresponds with a crescendo of brokenness. From 1960 to the turn of the 21st century, America has doubled its divorce rate, tripled its teen suicide rate, quadrupled its violent crime, quintupled its prison population, sextupled out of wedlock births, and septupled the rate of cohabitation without marriage, which has been established as a significant predictor of divorce. 
In other words, the sexual revolution has left a trail of dead bodies and broken homes and fatherless children and miserable people in its wake. All because, as Solomon says here, sexual immorality is destructive. It's presented a bait of sweetness that's given way to bitter poison. It's presented a message as smooth of oil, but it's carried a hidden blade which has cut many a victim to pieces. And so our God and Father would spare us by giving us fair warning here saying, don't walk down this path. When you hear the voice of sexual temptation and sexual immorality beckoning you, inviting you, enticing you, telling you exactly what you think you want to hear in that moment, when you see the bait, remember there's a hook. Remember, this path leads to destruction. Don't take it. Of course, there's also those of us in this room who might feel that this warning has just come too late for us. Perhaps there are those of us in this room who who have already walked down this path in some way, shape, or form. As as someone who was walking down this path myself until 2008, I understand how alarming passages like this can be. But as someone who has been rescued from this path myself, let me also tell you this. If you have walked down this path, there is still hope for you. As long as you are still breathing, there is hope for you in Jesus Christ. Jesus himself told us in Mark 2.17 that those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Right? Jesus came not for those who are well, not for those who don't need him and who are doing very well on their own, thank you very much. Jesus came for the broken. Jesus came for the impure. Jesus came for sexual sinners, and he came to take all of our sin, even our sexual sin, upon himself on the cross so that in him we might instead be the righteousness of God. In other words, so that you might be set free from your guilt and treated as righteous by God in him. And then set on this new path, this path of freedom and wholeness and safety from the destructiveness of sexual decadence. Friend, Christ can redeem you from ruination and make you royalty in himself. If you believe him, if you receive his rescue by faith, if you walk with him on this new path, this path of wisdom and freedom, which he invites us onto next. Because for those who who do receive his good gift, he offers this stunning alternative vision for sex here. He calls us to a life of sexual wisdom instead of sexual folly, which we see here in verses 15 to 23. Look with me at the appeal and delight of sexual constancy. Now, some of us might be somewhat surprised to see in these verses such a positive view of sex. We might even be more surprised to see some of the steamy language used here. I think if you really look at what the Bible has to say about sex, this is what you'll find. That the, the tabooed treatment of sex, sometimes espoused by some Christians, is nowhere to be found in the Bible. The view that sex in and of itself is dirty or unclean or obscene, it's not biblical 
at all. That, that came more from the influences of certain Greek philosophies, not the Bible, right? The, the, the Bible views sex in its proper context as being a beautiful, wonderful gift from the hand of the Creator God. C.S. Lewis talks about this in Mere Christianity when he writes that, I know that some muddle-headed Christians have talked as if Christianity thought that sex or the body or pleasure were bad in themselves, but they were wrong. Christianity is almost the only one of the great religions which thoroughly approves of the body, which believes that matter is good, that God himself once took on a human body, that some kind of body is going to be given to us in heaven and is going to be an essential part of our happiness, our beauty, our energy. Christianity has glorified marriage more than any other religion, and nearly all of the greatest love poetry in the world has been produced by Christians. If anyone says that sex in itself is bad, Christianity contradicts him at once. And Lewis is right. Christianity, the Bible, shows marriage and sex within marriage to be a good and gracious gift from our God before the fall, Genesis 2, 24 and 25. We see Moses write about the beginning and the first marriage, Adam and Eve coming together, being appointed by God, and he, and he writes that a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. All right, so he's saying, well, just... What we just saw here in Genesis 2 is supposed to happen over and over and over again amongst human creatures until the end of time, a man and a woman are to be brought together into this one flesh union. And what Genesis 2.24 is saying here is that sexual intercourse is to be the, the consummating act of this union. So you see sex and marriage within it from the beginning was good and beautiful and blessed by God. Genesis 2 presents this beautiful portrayal of marriage and sex as a glorious gift. And in all of this, we actually see that, that sex is actually God's idea. Right? He made it. He invented sexual pleasure in the beginning before the fall. It's not as if God created Adam and Eve in the beginning and, and Satan was over there in Genesis 3 forming little sexual organs out of the dirt. It, no, this is created by God. He's designed sex for his creatures to enjoy and participate in, but only within a certain context. Sex is only meant to take place within the safety of a committed covenant relationship called marriage. Outside of marriage, we've already seen, sex is destructive and dangerous and damaging. But within marriage, it is beautiful and life-giving and good. In this sense, we might, we might compare it to a firework, right? If a firework is set off in the wrong context, you might burn your whole neighborhood down. If you're not you know, abiding by the right safety precautions and regulations and all that, you could burn your house down, your whole neighborhood down, but if you set off a firework in the right context with the right precautions in place in a responsible manner, it can fill the sky with light and color and beauty. Sex is like that. And if you think about it for just a moment, you can see why that is. Sex is this extremely, it's not disenchanted, it's an extremely vulnerable and self-giving act. As much as the world might want to pretend that sex is disenchanted, this meaningless social interaction, this is an inescapable fact, sex is extremely vulnerable. In sexual intercourse, you are opening yourself up to and giving yourself to another person in an extremely intimate manner, 
And giving yourself to someone like that is only appropriate and safe when you've entered into this covenant relationship called marriage. Sex should only come with the kind of radical, self-giving, whole life commitment purposed in marriage. When two people have gone official, formal, public, even legal with their commitment to one another, when you've said, listen, this is it, it's you and me. I'm staying, I'm committed to you until death, I'm not going anywhere, all I am and all I have is yours. It's only in that kind of relationship that two individuals can experience utter vulnerability in the context of utter safety and love and commitment. It's there where you can begin to to undress, so to speak, and give your whole self to another person without needing to fear rejection or abandonment. And let me tell you, when that happens, It is a lovely and good and beautiful thing. And that's why Proverbs 5 can just go straight on to not be shy or prudish about sex and marriage here. Instead, it's praised and commended and rejoiced in. In these verses, it's repeatedly represented with with water imagery, giving the sense that That sex in marriage is this life-giving, thirst-quenching, satisfying thing. In verse 15, a wife's sexuality is portrayed as a cistern and a well. Solomon says, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. He's saying, quench your sexual thirst through making love to your spouse. In verse 16, the husband's sexuality is portrayed as springs and streams of water. They're not to be scattered abroad or or out in the streets. They're to be for the wife and for the wife alone, no one else. In verse 18, a person's, you know, your sexual capacity is portrayed as a fountain. And, And Solomon pronounces a benediction over his son's sexual capacity and over the sexual union of his son and daughter in law. He says, Let your fountain be blessed. And that just begs the question, like, what kind of blessing are we talking about here? Some people might want to say it's just talking about procreation. Seems to have more in mind here than just that. He goes on to describe the kind of blessing he intends here. It's a blessing of utter delight and enjoyment and pleasure in this marriage. He says, rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love steamy. So the blessing intended here is one of sexual attraction and delight and enjoyment. Solomon wants his son and his son's wife to enjoy and delight in each other's bodies. He even goes as far to say, be intoxicated. Right? That, that word means to be led astray. Literally, it means to be led astray, and it's often associated with drunkenness. He's saying, I want you to get carried away with sexual passion for your spouse. And all because this is where God's life-giving blessing of sexual pleasure was meant to be enjoyed. And if that's the case, Solomon goes on to just put the question to us, if sexual pleasure is to be found in this life-giving way in marriage, why would we look for it outside? Especially considering that it's so particularly destructive there. Verse 20, why should you be intoxicated? Notice, God's not against being intoxicated and led astray and carried away with sexual passion and pleasure. 
Because he just said to allow yourself to be intoxicated with sexual passion for your spouse. He's not against this kind of overwhelming sexual passion and pleasure, period. He's for it. It's his idea. It's just to be enjoyed in this proper place where it's safe and secure and proper. But outside of that, he says, why should you be intoxicated with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? If you allow yourself to be carried away with sexual passion outside of your marriage, destruction awaits, he says. Because, verse 21, a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. The Lord sees all, he knows all, and because of that, God will not be mocked. We will reap what we sow. And if you sow sexual decadence and immorality, well, the iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. And he's held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. He's reiterating here. There's destruction awaiting those who pursue the path of sexual folly. Sooner or later, if you do not repent, you will reap what you sow. Whether in this age or in the age to come, your folly will find you out, so choose wisdom. Choose godly, biblical, sexual gratification, not its cheap and destructive substitute. That's the message of Proverbs 5. Now, with all that, how then should we think and live and act in light of these realities? What do we need to acknowledge and do in order to live in light of this text? And we could say a lot here, but I'm going to limit it to to just three pieces of application before we close. First is to accept your own creatureliness. Accept your own creatureliness. It's a basic idea. You've got to understand and accept and live according to in order to live in the Bible's ethical teaching is this, you are a creature. You're a glorious creature. You're a creature made in the image of your creator, but you're a creature nonetheless, and therefore, like every other created thing, there are certain restrictions and boundaries and rules that you've got to respect if you're going to live according to your design, right? Tim Keller once compared living in God's will like being a fish in water, right? There's a certain restriction and boundary fish have to respect if they're going to live and thrive, and it's this, they've got to stay in water. If you come across a goldfish in a tank and you go, man, this poor goldfish, so bound and restricted by this water, I'm going to set this thing free. What do you do? You kill the goldfish. That's what we did with the sexual revolutions of the 60s. There are certain boundaries and restrictions you've got to respect if we're going to live and thrive as creatures. And this is true when it comes to sex and sexual pleasure. And calling us to, to sexual constancy, to sexual fidelity, to sexual chastity in Proverbs 5 here. The Lord is not trying to ruin fun. He's trying to protect us. He's trying to care for us. He's trying to help us live according to our blueprint, so to speak. Are there restrictions and boundaries? Absolutely. But so there are with every created thing, and those boundaries have got to be respected if we want to thrive. Second, in addition to accepting your creatureliness, you also need to acknowledge your life as Coram Deo. Acknowledge your life, that you live Coram Deo. And I know that's not English, it's Latin, but it starts with a C. I needed a C word. 
John Calvin coined this term. It's good enough for me, you know. I'll use it. But it's a term that means before the face of God. It's worth remembering. We, all of us, at all times live quorum Deo, before the face of God. We are always in his presence. That's what verse 21 is here calling us to recognize and remember. It's calling us to, to fear, to live in fear of the Lord, to be cognizant of this reality that, that he is ever before us at all times. Ed Welch speaks about this reality in his book on addiction. He, he writes that the fear of the Lord is knowing that I live quorum Deo before the face of God. It is knowing that the holy God sees every aspect of my life. The result is that we live knowing that we are seen. We live publicly and follow Christ in joyful and reverential obedience. You just imagine for a moment how truly believing that, that you live quorum Deo before the face of God at all times might just radically change your life. It would change your thought life. The, the images you ruminate over in your mind, the thoughts you entertain. Imagine how this might change the kind of actions and behaviors you engage in in private. What kind of things you view on the internet. What kind of shows and movies you consume. The kinds of links you click on on your phone. Can you imagine how this might change the kinds of conversations you engage in and tolerate with others at work, in your DMs, or wherever? Are there things in your life that you're giving yourself to that you would feel embarrassed and ashamed by if another person were to witness? And if so, recognize this reality. The, the Holy One Himself sees. Bridges... Charles Bridges says of this, oh, if men would what, but read and believe their Bibles, this solemn truth that God examines all their paths would flash upon their consciences. So it would acknowledge, acknowledge at all times that you live quorum Deo. And then lastly, apply yourself to contentment. Apply yourself to, pursue, fight for contentment in life no matter what circumstances you find yourself in. For all those who would live according to God's good vision for sexual constancy and chastity and fidelity, we must fight for contentment. C.S. Lewis once rightly said that, that sexual chastity is probably the most unpopular of all Christian virtues, possibly the most difficult. Chastity, sex, only in marriage or total abstinence outside of marriage. It's, it's, it's always been hard. Since the fall, it's been hard. But, but even more so, when it, gets, it goes so much against the cultural grain of our moment. The, the messages we hear over and over and over again is that sex is meaningless, but that in order to live a good life, you've got to be able to give vent and expression to whatever sexual desires you feel constantly told that a good life is a life wherein sex is frequent and without any restrictions. That's a water we swim in every day, and the only kind of people that are going to be able to withstand that kind of constant messaging and temptation is the people who have already found a deep contentment in life. Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs once said that temptations will no more prevail over a contented man than a dart that is thrown against a brazen wall. In other words, if you want to 
to be able to withstand temptation, particularly sexual temptation, you've got to be a contented person. And by content, don't misunderstand. I I don't mean it like people sometimes do. Sometimes when we think of contentment, we think of just kind of settling or being complacent. It's not what I mean. What I mean by contentment, what the Bible often means by contentment is being satisfied, being a satisfied and fulfilled person. And that's what we need in order to truly live according to Scripture's vision for sex in our age. Because listen, for some of us, in some sense, we might experience something less than what we want in our earthly circumstances when it comes to sex. Perhaps as we were just looking at some of this chapter this morning, you were thinking, well, I'm married and my sex life is not like that. Maybe sex in your marriage is is not particularly enjoyable right now in this season. Maybe it's more marked by struggle and confusion and pain or whatever. If that's the case, please don't be ashamed or, or embarrassed by that. We all need help sometimes and and listen, there are people in this church that would love to help you if you're open to that, but, but even still, not every season of married life is going to look exactly like Proverbs 5 here, even in the best of marriages. In fact, I, I'd go as far to say that enjoying and maintaining sexual union in marriage like this, it's hard won. It takes intentionality and perseverance through hard seasons. It can be enjoyed, but it takes work. Or maybe you're not married, and you were thinking, as we were reading through Proverbs 5 here, yeah, it would be nice if I could experience sex like this, but I'm single, so it's not an option for me right now. Maybe you long for marriage and this kind of sexual enjoyment within it. That's not a bad desire. That's a good desire. That's a good thing for you to pursue. But if any of that describes you, or even if it doesn't, if you have no sex or a terrible sex life, or the best imaginable, no, no matter what, I want you to know that you can still be a contented, satisfied, fulfilled person, right? The, the most fulfilled person in all of human history never had sex. Realize that. Great sex in marriage, as wonderful as it is, is not a requirement for fulfilled, satisfied, contented life. It's what marriage ultimately points to that is, right? What, what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 5, 31 and 32, he, he quotes Genesis 2, 24, what we read earlier, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says, this mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. You see, he's saying this one flesh union that is marriage was actually created and designed by God to be a living parable, an image, a portrait of something far more glorious and satisfying. It's ultimately pointing us to the union that is between Christ and us as his people. With Christ, not unlike what we were saying about marriage earlier, we get to experience this deep, wonderful thrill of being totally exposed, totally vulnerable, totally known and yet totally loved, totally accepted, totally delighted in by one who is totally committed and totally devoted to us. In short, in Christ, you are fully known and fully loved. 
And he's showing us this because he's the one who's come to take on our flesh in the incarnation. And he's come to take on our sin and our death on his cross. A sin he sees and knows so well, but is not deterred by. He sees us, he knows us completely, and yet he still went to the cross so that he might win us as his beloved bride, so that we would be his and be with him where he is forevermore. And when you come to know that you are loved like that, that you are delighted in like that, that you are desired like that by the God of the universe, when you begin to experience that reality, you can begin to be content. When you know that Christ is the lover of your soul, you can know a satisfaction like no other. When you experience this loving union with your Savior, you will find fulfillment you can't find anywhere else. Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4, 10 to 13 says that, that it's this. It's union with Christ. It's union with Christ and where we find the secret to contentment. He says that he's learned the secret to facing abundance and lack. He knows how to be brought low and how to abound and how to be satisfied in the midst of it all. And the secret is this, through Christ who strengthens me. It's knowing and being known by Christ. It's being one with Christ Jesus is being united with and loved by Jesus Christ. Friend, if you would be content, regardless of marital status or sexual enjoyment or whatever else, look to Christ. And if you look to Christ and are thereby contented in him, you can avoid folly's path to devastation. And you can enjoy and experience wisdom's gratification. And it will be good. Let's pray. Fathers, we have heard this gospel with our ears now. We pray that you would seal it upon our hearts as we come to participate in the supper that we receive through our mouths. Lord, may this be to us a sign and a seal of the gospel we just heard so that we might experience in it a heavenly taste of our union with Christ in ways that are satisfying, in ways that are comforting, in ways that are strengthening so that we might go from here with strength to avoid Folly's path and pursue and walk down the path of wisdom. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.